Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and I am joined live in studio by my regular co-host, Dara Lind. Hello, on the other side of the glass partition. Well, on both sides of the glass partition, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And Jerusalem Demsis. Hello, hello. And today we're going to be talking about the big elections last week. If you don't know what elections we're talking about, you probably don't live in San Francisco. We do not either, Um, but we thought the events there were interesting. Um, So three members of the city school board were removed from office in a recall election, that wonderful California tradition. And while some of the reasons for the defeat were very specific to San Francisco, and we'll get into some of them, others relate to questions about school reopening, school renaming, selective magnet schools. And those are questions that are relevant to just about anyone with a stake in public education, particularly sort of urban public education. So, Jerusalem, you pitched this topic, so I'm going to call on you first. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, it's like a lo- why we're didn't just go to law school. hazing you on your way out. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, okay, walk us through what happened in San Francisco and why, as someone who lives in D.C., you thought this was, was interesting and jumped out of the specific San Francisco context for you. Yeah, so we're going to spend most of the conversation talking about why this may have happened and its political implications, but just to explain what exactly happened. There were three school board members that have been recalled, uh, Gabriela Lopez, Allison Collins, and Fawa Moliga. And they were called with like insane levels of the vote. It was 74% supporting the recall for Gabriela Lopez, 78% supporting for Allison Collins, and 71% for Moliga. And one thing that reporting has said is that the recall effort was directed at the entire board, but that these three were the only ones that were eligible because they were the only ones that served long enough. So um, while there are specific reasons why people were angry at these three individuals, there was a generalized irritation at the entire school board for, for various reasons. It is the city's first recall election since 1983, and it's the first successful one in, in memory. So that's interesting. I mean, I, earlier this year, I, I wrote a little piece about the Gavin Newsom recall effort. And so some of the history here is, like, interesting in that California is a pretty strong culture of direct democracy where, like, every election cycle, I'm sure someone will see uh, viral ballots <laughs> that are, like, just pages and pages long of just ballot measures that uh, citizens are forced to vote on. And they're the only electorate since 1921 to have ever actually recalled their chief executive. Um, A lot of this is born out of, like, progressive movement, post-Gilded Age, direct democracy stuff that kind of came out in California. But that's why, like, you kind of hear about recalls happening in California a lot. But I do want to emphasize that this is is still pretty strange for California, even though they're used to, like, having recalls on the ballot. That one is successful, and one is successful in San Francisco is, like, not normal. So there's recall election. These three people uh, get recalled. And there seem to be a number of reasons for this. What was your read, Jerusalem, doing doing research into some of the motivations behind the recall campaign? A lot of that has to do with people just kind of felt the school board was incompetent. And uh, a lot of what the school board was doing has in, you know, in a lot more light because of what's been going on with COVID school closures. So a lot of things we're going to talk about, about renaming a bunch of schools under the name of equity, about changing the admissions process for a really prominent magnet school, and 
also, of course, like racist things that have been said by one of the school board members um, accusing Asians of being anti-black. Like all of these things were kind of just revealing just how bad the operation of the school board actually was. There was one instant that thing is like highlights this pretty well, where because there's a lot of open meetings uh, happening um, over Zoom and people were able to pay attention, people were just noticing just ridiculous outcomes happening. For instance, people didn't want a community board to become predominantly white. So they struck a gay man from being able to actually come onto the board, leaving the existing board full of just straight women in San Francisco. And so it was stuff like that where everyone was just like, what is going on? Why is this happening? Why is this school board, which is incredibly important during COVID, kind of full of people that don't share my, maybe don't share my values, or if they do, they're just incapable of actually implementing them in a reasonable way, which is why you saw a lot of Democrats actually supporting the recall effort. Obviously, San Francisco, it's a very <laughs> overwhelmingly majority city. But I do think one thing that's important to note is that there is a strain of real, like, dark uh, racism happening here as well in terms of there are horrible messages being sent to anti-recall people um, and to school board members both before and after the recall happened. I'm not going to even read them out loud. They're pretty vile and bigoted. They contain threats of real violence. Um, it's undeniable there's a strain that's present in the recall that's happening there. It's important to name that. There's also um, some uh, what people are calling more right-wing money that has actually come in and, and, and financed much of the of the recall. But I, I think I am very skeptical of the idea that the majority of people who are participating in recalling these individuals are at all in cahoots with the sort of like right-wing ideology, considering that it is San Francisco, California. <laughs> Well, and also that that some of the specific voting base, and you see this sort of when you break down the areas in San Francisco that are were most supportive of the recall, like the whole city seemed broadly supportive. These were 70, 80 percent margins, as you were saying, but huge anti-recall sentiment in the Sunset District, which is, which is overwhelmingly Asian-American, particularly Chinese-American. Some of the, the strongest pro-recall votes were around Lowell, which is the disproportionately Asian, disproportionately not black and Latino uh, mm-hmm. magnet school that has been at the center of, of a lot of this, as you've said. And Jay Caspian King, who lives in the area and has done some reporting on the recall, had a really nice column about this, just going into the extent of, of Asian American community activism going into the recall mm-hmm. and that that seems most relevant to Lowell and sort of it's a fixed size school. And so debates over who gets admitted to it are kind of zero sum. And and I think there was a sense that under the new system they're doing where it's just lottery based as opposed to based on standardized tests and, and GPA that Asian students would lose out for the sake of diversifying it and allowing more black and Latino students. And so that seemed relevant. But also, as you said, Allison Collins, who's one of the recalled people, had a string of tweets referring to Asian Americans as house N words, yeah, which Jesus is Christ. wildly racist, <laughs> and and also not. It's not surprising that in response to that, like there was major Asian American organizing against the school board. Yeah, that that if if the school board that was seen as preoccupied with sort of mostly symbolic racial justice initiatives, and also that their view of racial justice was kind of exclusionary to Asian Americans. You don't have to construct a narrative about, like, investors coming in and and astroturfing to explain why people were upset about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I do, like, and this is where it gets into the kind of post hoc uh, narrativization because that's so much of why this is, like, a nationally relevant story, right? When we were talking about affirmative action last – a couple of weeks ago, the last time I was on the show, we did have to tease out this – the relationship that Asian Americans have to affirmative action regimes and the extent to which there is a legitimate racial equity argument there that also provides a convenient opportunity for people who dislike any racial equity projects in higher education to pursue. And, and you know, this is, I think what we're seeing here is like the dark underbelly of that, right, where a school board member who assumed that Asian Americans were at best being useful pawns for this darker agenda just went way, way too far in assuming actual malice and like just in, you know, and and, and also uh, just totally okay with a whole lot of stuff that doesn't need to be said is bad and wrong and shouldn't be said publicly or privately, especially if you're in a position of public trust. But the idea that somebody who might think that they're on your side is in fact kind of helping your enemies has really characterized the narrative that's happened after this election, right, where you have pro-recall Democrats, many of whom have national platforms because San Francisco does have a lot of prominent liberal commentators, 
<laughs> trying to rest, you know, trying to distinguish themselves, trying to argue to the pro-recall or to the anti-recall folks, no, really, we're mostly on your side. There were specific issues at play here. Do not, you know, lump us in with the right-wingers nationally who are saying that this was because wokeness, because school renaming. And the anti-recall folks, on the other hand, trying to do coalitional work with pro-recall liberals and saying, don't you understand that inevitably— if you support this sort of effort, it is going to be used by people you disagree with to pursue policies that you disagree with. And really, you guys should be doing some self-reflection because if you didn't want those people to feel empowered, you shouldn't have done what you did. I think it's worth kind of teasing out why it is that we are seeing – I mean, I wrestle with this question a lot in my work of just why do progressive places sort of default to doing symbolism versus, you know, going after material, you know, uh, changes? And, I mean, one of the easy answers is that symbolism is literally easier to do. It's, like, just easier to change the name of a school right. than it is to solve the problem of, uh, you know, educational inequality. <laughs> like, that is just an easy thing to do. And I think the other thing, though, is because we – I mean, there's a lot of blame being placed on these school members, rightly so, but also, like – Progressive voters and left of center voters do not actually want people to pursue the process by which you would actually get the material change to happen. Like you see opposition constantly to things like, you know, desegregation programs or or building new housing or building new trans or things like that. This stuff is something that happens repeatedly. And so I don't know. I think the secondary part of it, though, too, is just like this kind of reflexive genuflection to process. Um, Isaac Chotner interviewed Gabrielle Lopez, who was one of the recalled school members a while back. Um, it was after they were considering changing the name. So there were the school vote with the board education voted 6-1 to change the names of 44 schools, including schools named after Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. And it, it was beyond just like, OK, like, do we consider people having done bad things? And there was like really bad history happening. Uh, you know, they were going to change the name of Paul Revere Elementary because of his role in the Penobscot Expedition of 1779, which they claimed was to colonize the Penobscot people, but was not true. It was an assault on a British fort. Anyway, I'm getting kind of beyond the point here because yes. I thought that was They just like made up some stuff they about just, Paul Revere. Yes. And like, but the interesting part of that I think is like important is that he asks her about this because uh, he asked her about this committee and like what's going on here and what's gone wrong. And she just keeps saying like, I don't want to get into the process where we discredit the work that this group has done. I think we just need to require more dialogue and kind of refuses to engage on the question of, you know, is it bad that you guys were literally wrong about whether or not these schools names should be changed? And I think that like the marrying of process dialogue with like equity is a real problem that's happened on the left and it comes up a lot. Um, you know, it's the same kind of dynamic that it continues when localities use local community meetings to determine community input despite like tons of evidence showing that this is not actually representative of the population. And I don't know, it's like these are like local input like this are and, and the way these process works like sound very progressive. But in reality, they're, it's a way of confirming like small c conservative desires at the local level because they stop progress all the time. And so I think it's, it's worth thinking about like the structural things that are going on here beyond just like these people are kind of, you know, on the deep end. <laughs> so it seems like we have two meta narratives here. There is the like substantive something has gone wrong with this political coalition so that it like ended up doing these things that were deleterious to children's education. And then there's the competence argument, which is, you know, the argument that pro-recall liberals have been making, that there were specific failings of this school board, of these members. And both of those kind of cut across the series of issues, Jerusalem, that you laid out. So it, it might be worth kind of going through those issues one by one and laying out what, like, the competence frame says about them versus the, for lack of a better term, wokeness or going too far frame. Yeah, I mean, the competence frame, I think a lot of it has to do with the not just like schools were closed. I mean, this is San Francisco we're talking about. People were masking voluntarily um, out, outdoors. Like people are uh, very much kind of adhering to public health guidelines. And additionally, there is a large Asian American population that that was masking before it became common right. in the United States. So this is not something where it's like people were anti-COVID measures or something like that. But San Francisco schools were closed longer than the rest of the country on average. Um, and the board and the district didn't do a ton of planning in 2020, uh, summer 2020 to reopen them or to make remote work easier or make substantive contingency plans. And, you know, people were really 
angry about this, obviously. Uh, it's also California. It is warm. Like, there are things that you can do uh, to, to have school outside or kind of instruction outside. Or, and also, we know this now, there's massive budget surpluses that were being accumulated in states across the country, including in California, which has a massive budget surplus. And at the same time is when all of this stuff is happening, that they're watching the focus of these school board meetings happen on um, these more symbolic equity measures. So I think on the competence piece here. It is it is, uh, it is a prioritization thing. And it's also just, I think, honestly, this is what's happening in local government all the time, that people are kind of just doing random things without really a sense of whether or not it is actually in line with the priorities of the community. But there's not a lot of attention on it because local news has died. And so there's not a ton of people who are keeping tabs on what's going on. Um, but COVID has brought a lot more attention to this. Uh, and then I think it's probably worth getting into the weeds on the Lowell stuff here a bit. Yes. Um, so Dylan, you already mentioned kind of like the shift that they're trying to do. But, you know, this is kind of reflects also what's been going on broadly about kind of a the fight to get rid of SAT scores and admissions or even on affirmative action and things like that, where there's I think it's an outgrowth of the symbolism problem. Um, why is it that black and Latino kids aren't getting the same GPAs as white and Asian kids? It's not because of their race, obviously. It's because of like differences in accesses to resources and a bunch of other things. But dealing with that is like really hard. And so Lowell has become kind of like the symbol of, oh, we need to change this. If we change the face of this, if this looks um, more like San Francisco, then we'll have like solved the underlying problem. But you don't actually fix the problem. There's still kids not getting access to equal education. There's still like some lack of uh, resources that they're not having when they're younger or their parents aren't getting or whatever it is that is making them uh, unable to access low at the same rates. And I, I think that that's probably one of the underplayed things in the national narrative is just how much it's had to do with this one school, which is a symbol of a lot of like, I mean, it's like one of the top public school in, in San Francisco and one of the top in the country of of why people were really angry and they thought that something was being taken away from them beyond just like this isn't just a um, Asian versus, versus black people thing or anything like that. It is very much a this is an important school. Like we want to be able to know clearly that we're going to be able to get in based on the standards that have already been set. And so it was really, I think, counterproductive for them to make it a racial narrative. It's really interesting here, you know, in contrast with, say, New York, where there is a, an effort to eliminate magnet schools on the whole, that this is an effort where a change to admissions at a single school was portrayed as this not as like not just as a synecdoche for the system, but like the thing we can do to solve it. If you think about it, I mean, the the late great Matt Iglesias RIP posted on his newsletter a couple of weeks ago that his his son Jose had the extremely hot take that it's good for schools to do merit in admissions because then the kids who need the most help can go to the schools with the best resources. Um, and that's an argument for differentiating schools and and not doing a pure you know, neighborhood schools or a pure lottery method in a public school system that is that like surely cuts against the, you know, meritocracy of the magnet school and towards an equity lens. But that's not what they're doing here. They're saying this one school, we know it's good. So we're going to instead of trying to make sure that there is generally a better distribution of like good educational resources throughout our system, we're going to make sure that whoever happens to get this lottery gets a perfectly good public education. And it's just it's very hard to understand from the outside, I would assume, because I don't, you know, maybe if I were in the, you know, San Francisco public schools community, I would understand the kind of charisma that the Lowell name has and understand just how big that, you know, because it, it makes yeah. sense. We were talking about the Ivies when we were talking about affirmative action. Like there are certain institutions that just occupy a lot of mind space and so really do when they change policies have a downstream effect in how you see the system. But like, on the face of it, this was either wildly inadequate or like, you know, just a wild overcorrection to the problem of magnets and equity. So we're, we're going to take a break. But when we get back, it sounds like I'm the only person here who thinks what they did with Lowell was good. So we will, we will get into that <laughs> uh, when, we, when we're back from the break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. 
They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, we're back. So Lowell High School, we've we've been talking a bit about this, but I, I want to take a step back and and sort of explain precisely what happened here. So Lowell may not mean much to Dara, but <laughs> I I have a relentlessly East Coast bias about these things. I grew up in New Hampshire and I knew what Lowell was. Like Lowell is one of is like the Boston Latin or Stuyvesant or like... Okay, let me correct. I have a relentlessly Midwestern bias about these things. It is frankly wild to me that there is a canon of public schools who everyone knows. Yeah. Some of us did Model UN in high school and got the shit beaten out of us by these places. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, it's a big deal. Like, uh, Stephen Breyer went there. They're very excited about Stephen Breyer. But it it was the elite public school, elite non-private school in San Francisco where some of their highest achieving people have gone for decades and decades. And as as I was saying with Boston Latin and Stuyvesant, this is not exclusive to San Francisco. Schools like this that are sort of exam or or GPA-based – in D.C., we have School Without Walls and Banneker. Um, New York also has Bronx Science and Hunter. And so, like, setting up selective schools, selected using standardized tests, this is a thing that my understanding is most urban school districts in the U.S. have done in some form. Um, and this change obviously incensed Asian Americans. And there's obviously sort of a limit to how how much you can do by changing one school. That that at, I, I'm not going to argue that changing Lowell's admissions is is a cure all for the San Francisco public education system, but let me make the case that it's a good idea. <laughs> um, so the exact change they did was going from a standardized test and GPA based admission to just simple lottery, and I think that's actually quite evidence based based on what we know about magnet schools and also what we know about like integration efforts of like, quote-unquote, non-gifted students into sort of higher-quality schools. So there have been a couple of good randomized studies, one that Josh Ingrist and uh, Parag Pathak and and co-authors did, um, another one that Roland Fryer and Will Dobby did, looking at score cutoffs for Boston and New York City exam schools. So usually these places have, have a set score you have to get, and so you compare people just below the cutoff, people just above the cutoff. And what they find, like, very consistently and, and with, like, shocking degrees of precision to me is that kids who didn't get into the school narrowly do just as well as kids who got into the school narrowly. Mm-hmm. Um, there doesn't seem to be any difference in test scores. There's some disagreement about, like, some small changes in likelihood to enroll in college, but even that doesn't seem that significant. There don't seem to be any sort of long-run effects anyone can can find of this. And it really seems to suggest to me that a lot of the sort of heralded success of these schools, like people talk about Bronx science having more Nobel laureates than many countries, is just selection. Like, yeah, if you get all the smartest science kids in New York City, you're going to get a lot of Nobel <laughs> Prize winners. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Whereas by contrast, uh, David Card had a very nice paper um, a few years ago in the American Economic Review with uh, Laura Giuliano. And they were looking at a program where any school that had like super gifted kids, even if they were one or two, had to create a gifted classroom. And so because there were so few like quote unquote gifted kids, they had to fill the classroom with other like quote like non-gifted kids. <laughs> um, and like this is a mean way to talk about people. But, but it was interesting because they found like really large gains, especially for black and Hispanic kids who got lumped in sort of with the, with the gifted classroom and getting that kind of sort of attention and, and sort of that kind of tracking. And that more important, uh, they didn't find any negative spillovers for other students. It wasn't that you were culling kids away yeah. from, um, from other classrooms and like leaving those sort of classrooms left over to suffer. All of this combines in my head to be like, you know, like Lowell High School seems like it's a pretty high quality high school. And by randomizing admission, making it much more racially diverse and sort of the, the complaint about Lowell has always been that it has a disproportionately small black and Latino population relative to the population of San Francisco, that that might actually have real benefits for people newly let in and probably isn't hurting the kids who are not going to Lowell as a consequence. They're probably going to be fine. Yeah, I mean, I strongly agree that, like, this on the policy merits, this is correct. I just think it's, like, I think I, I, I definitely feel concerned about making this a case around, oh, we just need to be taking something from one group and giving it to another. And, like, clearly marketing this as a sort of under a scarcity mindset, like, obviously there's some level of scarcity. There are only so many slots at Lowell. Some people will get them and others won't. But there's no reason to make it a situation where you're saying we are taking slots from the Asian American community and right. giving them to the black Latino <laughs> community. There are people who are Asian American who likely would benefit from this situation <laughs> because they have lower test scores and GPAs than other Asian Americans. And they're high achieving black and Latino students who may not benefit from this. So, like, yeah. I think it is very weird when there's a much larger population of people who should be benefiting from a lottery system than people who would be benefiting from the current system to artificially create a politics where so many people are opposed to you, even though it may be in their interest to be in your favor. I mean, just necessarily there are more people who would not be qualifying under a GPA, SAT, would have a higher chance of getting into Lowell under a lottery system. And so I think in general, I think it is it is, it is is something that makes a lot of sense to me from the way that, you know, progressive politics has sort of evolved, that these conversations happen under this kind of framework. And I, I think there's a lot of good reasons for people to be examining education and the school system under a racial equity framework. But I think we have to realize that, like, while that's happening in kind of, like, more academic and elite spaces, that's, like, a really alienating conversation for regular people to hear. Like, I don't know what it would have meant to my parents who were coming here and, like, never having engaged a school system to be told, like, hey, like, there's, like, an equity reason that we're going to let your kids – they would have been offended by something like right. that happening <laughs> if that happened to, like, my, my siblings when we were young. And, like, I, don't, I have no idea. Maybe we benefit from a at some point. But, like, I think my point is just, like, I think there needs to be a, a clarity around, like, who you're talking to because if you're just trying to talk to other people who already understand the language of progressivism, you're not actually getting closer to the equity ends that we were talking about. So this is where I think the competence argument really comes into focus for me in a way that I ha that I have trouble imagining as unique to San Francisco public schools, right? Because I want to make a few statements that I think are probably generally better recognized now than they were two years ago, which is that school boards are really important. <laughs> And that being a school board member at a time when everyone knows school boards are really important is really hard, right? Like absolutely nothing we've heard over the last 18 months as school boards have become the focus of a lot of angst around reopening or lack thereof, around some of this racial equity and, you know, CRT stuff has made it seem like being a school board member is a job anyone would or like, you know, an added responsibility that anyone would want. At the very same time, it's made it very clear that it's important to have people who take that job seriously in those in, in those positions. And so I can understand in a low salience pre-2020 world, having people on the school board who understand this stuff in very transactional terms, in terms of the people who show up to the school board meeting who are opposed to the lottery system are Asian American parents who are worried that their kids are going to get screwed over. The people who show up in favor of the lottery system are black parents who are worried their kids are being screwed over. Therefore, clearly, this is going to, like, my constituents are telling me that this is going to hurt one community and help another one. Like, yeah, it's it's really not helpful from a from a persuasion actually like building a coalition angle but it makes sense if this is something that like if if this isn't 
you know, your primary, if you have a lot of stuff on your plate, if you don't necessarily have a fully sophisticated understanding. Like, similarly, the kind of basic factual errors in the school renaming situation. History is hard. Like, it is, you know, I'm I'm not saying that this was, like, somehow a thing that, you know, obviously the response that we shouldn't be undermining the work of these people who got it wrong is not good. They also but refused just to like, have historians come and testify. Right, right. Like, see, <laughs> they the, right. said history happened. Either happened or it didn't. <laughs> this is, like, this is not, a, you know, this is not a good way to go about things. But it's also true that, like, you do require a certain amount of sophistication to do this stuff right that we would not have expected of a school board a few years ago. And so... Th- the, the thing that comes back to the like specificity of the California recall for me is, given Jerusalem that you said at the top of this episode, that it's not like every five years there's a big blow up and a couple of people get booted off the San Francisco school board. And, and you know, I understand that the competency argument really does rely on these specific things that happened and specific errors that the pro-recall liberals are saying, you know, were unique to this situation. But it really does seem that the broader salience of, hey— any screw up that a school board makes is going to be a lot more noticeable. And at the same time, the stakes of the decisions that they're making are higher. I have a hard time believing that if you had recall provisions in other state constitutions, that you wouldn't be seeing more stuff like this. Yeah, I I, I think I agree with that. I think, but I do, I do think this is also like a very weird moment with schools. Like I think that once schools are back in person, without kind of these kinds of disruptions, that it's unlikely that we see this kind of energy. But, you know, who knows? Yeah. Well, I think to to that point about sort of the importance of the recall procedure, so much of this is about specific Californian institutions and decision rules that seem completely baffling to anyone outside of it. <laughs> like, like so much of, of these these first order fights are being fought through process. Um, that, yeah, that's fair. That, a, you, you had a lot of people in talking about the school renamings not being opposed to school renamings, like would be supportive of getting mm-hmm. rid of Thomas Jefferson's name on stuff, but very angry about sort of the process through which it was done. Um, I think in some ways the most surprising validator of the recall to me was Matt Gonzalez, who mm-hmm. uh, I first heard about when he was the like Green Party nominee for mayor and because this is San Francisco, almost won um, against uh, the the far right Democrat Gavin Newsom in 2003. <laughs> um, and he's a professional public defender. He was uh, Ralph Nader's running mate for one of his presidential runs. But he supported the recall. And if you go through a lot of his his arguments for the recall, so many of them are about process. It's uh, I'm not I'm okay with renaming, but this process was terrible. He was very exercised about this. Mexican social realist mural that was going to be destroyed by the school board because it depicted sort of racialized violence. And his argument and the argument of other art preservationists was like, no, that's exactly the point. And like, literally, we, <laughs> this is why it was painted. <laughs> um, but the, the way that they got that mural preserved is that they filed a lawsuit under the California Environmental Quality Act, um, which is, is like the ur-villain of anyone who wants <laughs> – like California to be a functional civilization. Uh, like most recently, a CQA lawsuit led a judge to rule that UC Berkeley had to reduce their like incoming population by a third because they had failed to to consider that the act of being in the university was a project. Then they had to do an environmental impact study, and their neighbors somehow had standing to sue them about this. Um, Honestly, so much of this episode is just reminding me that the episode we did on affirmative action two weeks ago is like the most intelligent. I mean, not to like pat ourselves on the back, but like but it's just a wildly more intelligent version of the conversation than the actual versions of the conversation about who deserves a spot at elite university. We've been we've been shitting on California a lot, so I, I do want to say one thing, which is just that like obviously a lot of the symbolism is happening because we're not able to make real material progress on things and. Part of that is it's actually, like, not really known what you can do on early childhood interventions to fix a lot of the gaps that we care about. You know, there's obviously low-hanging fruit, like get rid- getting rid of lead paint and, like, physical right. safety and, and – Ventilation. And, and ventilation, things like that. Like, there are things that we could – I think that it's ridiculous that we don't just invest in these HEPA filters or things like that everywhere. But at the same time, it's like the research is really mixed on a lot of things. Like, we've just had a bunch of uh, studies showing the uh, research is really mixed on on, on pre-K. Uh, it's unclear about daycare even, what, what – what 
we're supposed to do with that. Uh, it's unclear. Often the best way to deal with public safety, um, which is a primary concern, uh, of course, if you're trying to talk about uh, racial equity. And so these things are really hard problems to solve. It's not just that these people aren't focused on them, but that's even more, I think, of an indictment of spending our time on on the most symbolic of measures because there's so much we don't know. There's so much research that we still have to do to figure out how to close these gaps. And it's, it, it is weird to spend so much time on these things when, honestly, I don't really understand why it would take that long to change the name of a school. Like, why is this a multi-year process with all these different things? Like, it just changed the name. If you want to change the name of the school. Like, people can vote on it locally. Like, I don't really care. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that that's part of the problem. But, it, yeah, I think my, my macro analysis of the whole situation is, like, too many people get a say. <laughs> That that part part of progress is that that sort of there has to be a presumption in favor of action and and not sort of a million ways uh, to stop it. And so, like, instead of the school board decides to tear down a mural and then everyone can sue them and stop it, like, I think the mural's fine. I don't want the mural being torn down. But, like, that's well within their purview. <laughs> they should be able to just do that. I also um, think they probably wouldn't if they realized there was no other problem. Like, they would be more reflective of the actions they were taking if they realized it's just them and the action versus, oh, if it's really that bad, someone will stop us. There's a community input and all this kind of stuff. Right. Well, and then on the other side of it, like one one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that Allison Collins, one of the recalled people, after she was censured by the board for saying a bunch of racist stuff about Asian Americans, she sued them for $87 million for, <laughs> yes. for, for sort of emotional injuries and stuff. And, and she cost the school board $400,000 defending itself. Right. 400000 Like there probably isn't a universe like under American civil law where you, you can just like prevent completely frivolous lawsuits like that. But it, it felt indicative of the broader like – there are a million yeah, it, veto it's points It's fair here. to say that that is a problem for an elected official to cost the institution that kind of money, and that might be a reason to remove said elected official. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I do... The funny thing about this is, Dylan, you know, to get back to the 20th and 21st century progressivism's point from the beginning of the episode, it seems like you're saying that this is kind of a toxic combination of the two, right? 20th century progressivism, which provided a set of veto points in the guise of direct democracy, being married to a very process-centric, language-centric, consensus-based model of 21st century progressive decision-making. And the reason that I find that a fascinating argument is that the pro-recall folks were saying one of the arguments on the competence side was that the school board was insufficiently direct democratic in violating open meetings laws and risk lawsuits. And that that was like a key part of the competence argument that they were not that they were doing all of this stuff, you know, in a slipshod dead of night way that didn't allow for enough community input. And so essentially it's like, well, if they'd had sufficient veto points available at the outset, we wouldn't have had to do this other thing, which which does seem to, you know, get at the the core of the way that process arguments can be used by both sides. But also, like, there really is a certain value in transparency and in, you know, allowing various, especially in something like this where there are various stakeholders whose perspectives probably need to be heard out before a decision can be made in any informed manner, like, there are reasons that direct democracy exists mm-hmm. and there are reasons that there are proponents for it. And it can be genuinely hard in practice to figure out when is this no longer a useful fact finding and coalition building exercise and when is it just process taking the form of veto point after veto point. I think one thing to, to name too is just that this cleavage of drawing political battle lines between Asian American and Black American and Latino American communities is something that I think is only going to grow, actually, yeah. in the future. We saw this, of course, with the hate crimes that happened over the last year. There's a lot of discourse around, you know, was it Black Americans that were predominantly causing this or things or who were perpetrators of these crimes or things like that, which blew up quite a bit on right-wing media as well, and also really found purchase within a lot of Asian American communities as a um, politically salient topic. And, you know, I think this is only going to become more important in cities. I mean, obviously, district Disproportionately, cities, uh, black Americans and Asian Americans disproportionately live in urban centers in the United States. And these cities have become pretty anti-growth. So a lot of what's happening here is that the conversation is around redistributing existing parts of the pod. And when that happens, that's going to essentially pit people against one another instead of creating new opportunities for growth. Like, we don't know how to make another lull. Like, if we could make another lull, this wouldn't be a problem. Um, but because we can't or because 
because we're not focused on trying to do that. Instead, we're talking about how do we take things away from individuals. And that's just like one example of how this is, I think, going to play out repeatedly. I mean, the politics of this happened in public safety, as I mentioned. I mean, it happened in schools. It's going to happen with a bunch of other things when it comes to city resources. And right now, you know, we're seeing states and localities generally having a lot of budget surpluses. But that's not something that's like normal. <laughs> it's not going to happen uh, repeatedly for a long time. And I think it's like really going to be concerning if there's not a way to um, reduce this uh, sort of friction because these are both very politically important. I mean, just I mean, they're people, but obviously for the, if we're talking about politics in, in particular, these are very politically important coalitions on the local level in city politics. And so I don't know, like I don't really have anything to say about what to do about it, but I'm just saying it's going to keep happening and everyone, you know, keep an eye out. All right. Well, having having solved urban education and and uh, <laughs> and racism and racism, don't forget. Um, we're going to take our second break. Uh, when we come back, we have a white paper that's all about inflation. It's all I ever wanted. Uh, stay with us. <laughs> Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. All right, and we're back. So today's white paper is uh, from the Chicago Fed. It's by Renato Ficini, Leonardo Melosi, and Russell Miles, and it is called The Effects of the Great Resignation on Labor Slack and Inflation. So there's a lot going on in this paper. I think the, the big value add for me is that it's really hard to measure how much slack there is in a, a labor force, especially sort of at a time when the population is aging right now. Like you can look at the share of people who are unemployed, but who counts as in the labor force for that can change a lot. But also how the labor force is changing is affected both by how good the economy is, but also by people retiring, by different levels of disability. And we might be seeing like higher levels of disability after COVID. But one innovation that this paper offers for thinking about sort of how tight the labor market is or, or how loose it is, sort of how much room for improvement we have before we get inflation is by looking at people who apply to jobs while they're working somewhere else. And the the point is that people who do sort of on-the-job search for other jobs can get higher wages because they sort of can elicit sort of counteroffers, have the threat of counteroffers, and get raises. And so this is a, a form of labor market tightness that that is not normally considered and so might be causing some inflationary pressures. Jerusalem, A, how do you feel about being personally responsible for inflation? <laughs> dear, dear God. Um, um, uh, too real, too real. Let's um, blame Herman. In fairness, you did suggest this white paper. I did. I actually was reading it. And I was like, oh, this is actually quite You played funny. yourself. I did. Um, so just to, to, to just uh, break down a little bit more. So when we're talking about Slack, we're talking about, you know, unemployed resources. So um, there's a bunch of resources in the economy that could be employed productively that isn't. That's like obviously very broad. Like how do you measure whether something's being employed productively or it's not? But that's right. I actually think like employed might even be an unhelpful way to think about this because we tend to think of workers as employed or unemployed. Like this is like, are these resources being utilized or are they, you know, and that includes workers who are in bad jobs where they are not able to like unleash their full productivity. Yeah. So like slack essentially is the difference between an economy's productive capacity. So like the goods and services that could be produced if all labor and capital were efficiently allocated and then the actual level of economic output. And so like as Dylan mentioned, it's like really hard to like get those numbers exactly. But one of the things that I think is, you know, I think that is I, I had not thought about before this is I, I know when I thought about in labor markets like I was just like it's the unemployment rate generally. Like if the people who are employed are being allocated productively and the ones that aren't are not being allocated productively in general. Because unemployed folks oh, when we're talking about unemployment measures, that's usually people who are looking for jobs, not people who are just not working. So I, I think it, it is makes a lot of sense that like in general, we know that like as the unemployment rate rises, right, labor slack rises because there are more people who are unemployed. So the price of labor and also the price of labor will go down. So you wouldn't expect that to be inflationary. But that's different, right, than like if people who are currently in jobs are all looking for other jobs, which is the kind of narrative of the great resignation that's happening, then 
you actually would see wages rise because unlike unemployed people like who don't have a current existing wage to anchor future negotiations, people with jobs can use their current wages to say like, oh, you have to pay me X amount in order to get me to leave my current job. And also the types of people who are employed versus unemployed generally are folks who uh, maybe have higher productive capacity. So if you're already employed, you're more likely to be someone who already you know, it's productively uh, valuable to companies because a company has already decided you are. So that's like a signal to, to other companies. And so what that means is that obviously, even without that anchoring wage, you probably would independently require a higher wage to in order to come to a new company. So, I mean, all this is really interesting just because I had not at all considered any of this part before. So I was like intrigued by it. Um, I, I think it's interesting to think about how um, I, one critique I saw from some lefty folks on online is just that like this paper kind of conflates a little bit wage inflation and price inflation. Like, obviously, when we're talking about inflation, we're usually like, we don't really, I wouldn't, like, no one would care if wages went up, but, like, prices didn't go up. We'd be like, that sounds great. Like, everyone's right. wages should go up, and that seems, like, important and lovely. The concern most of us have is, like, okay, but, like, does this mean that, like, prices are actually increasing for people and that we're entering maybe a wage price spiral that's, like, really concerning and could lead to long-term inflation? And so the paper does not get into that because, like, that's not the scope of what they're trying to do here, but I do want to name that, like, there's no yeah. evidence in this paper at all that, like, this has led to higher prices. Right. At the same time, there is an argument on the left that the current price inflation is purely or at least primarily the function of, you know, companies deciding that they can increase their th- that they can right. increase profit margins by increasing prices. And if wage inflation is also happening, then that certainly cuts against the idea that this is just people looking at the environment and saying, hey, no one will blame me if I raise prices right, right. now. It's worth pointing out that the argument for wage inflation isn't just about people being able to negotiate higher wages at different jobs. It's about the idea that if you assume that people are looking for new work on the job, some of those people will actually successfully negotiate a higher wage at their current employer. So in theory, the effect of wage inflation is like you can imagine it as kind of a what you see above the waterline and then there's something presumably equal, question mark, below the waterline. This is where the nature of the great resignation, I think, becomes a real question because a lot of the narrative around this Uh, Well, there there are a couple of narratives. There's one that is kind of focused on lower wage workers, which is that there is a replacement effect with social service, you know, with the kind of additional social safety net stuff that that Congress passed in the wake of the pandemic. And that for better or worse, this made it easier for people to not feel that they needed to be in jobs. That's not necessarily going to be reflected in the kind of change in employment. But there's also the argument of the Great Resignation that it was about people deciding that their current workplaces were intolerable. And so Mm -hmm. if you think about that, whether you think about it from the perspective of, you know, like minoritized employees leaving workplaces where they didn't feel welcome or, you know, from the perspective of people just being sick of being exploited, that's not a situation where negotiating a higher wage is going to necessarily make it make you likely to stay at your current company. So it's possible that the Great Resignation is actually showing more people above the waterline than below the waterline than you would typically see, where like it's actually not creating as much inflation on wages for people who are staying at their current companies. Because if you really wanted to leave your current company, you would, and a higher wage wouldn't be enough to get you to stay. Yeah, I think the distributional stuff here is really interesting. Like what this paper implies is is that um, a lot of wage gains are going towards people who are either currently employed and also people who can demand higher wages both from their current employer and from future potential employers. And that's like interesting because like that's not you know, that's what generally, generally people were like really concerned about getting wage gains. And so I, I think I think it is also it's hard to figure out how permanent this kind of thing is. It really depends on whether or not this sort of uh, the Great Resignation is like this, this temporary phenomenon kind of going on right now that if remote work kind of snaps back um, to being a lot less of a thing, like what does that actually do? Obviously with remote work, it opened up a lot more opportunities for people to apply to different jobs around the country simply because maybe you didn't have to move or you were able to move um, for whatever reason. And that means there's more jobs for you to apply to because you're not just locked into the current labor market that you currently live in. And so like that all is feels like very new and very like transient and like who knows how long that kind of sticks around. And and also, of course, I mean, the, the number they find is like that this raised uh, inflation by around one percentage point during most of 2021. That's a huge number, if that's right. correct. Yes. It, it's a huge <laughs> effect, but at the same time, not not the bulk of inflation. Totally, totally. Um, so it's it's a, a huge contributor, but not and, – and I think that fits also with some of 
the distributional numbers we do have so far. Um, Aaron Dubé at, at UMass has sort of semi-regularly been putting out these great charts that show wage gains by income percentile and then sort of showing how they relate to inflation. And over the last six months or so, he finds that it's sort of a, a J-curve in that the lowest income people see the biggest wage gains of anyone. It dips up again slightly at the very top um, that the sort of high earners seem to be doing better very recently. You don't see that if you look at like a year or two years, Mm -hmm. but that only about the lowest third of the income distribution are seeing wage gains that are higher than inflation. Everyone else are seeing substantial wage gains, but ones that are lower than the high levels of inflation right now. And so I think to make sense of that in light of this paper is this is sort of talking about that that loop at the top, <laughs> um, the, the and and sort of some dynamics among high earners, but a lot of of the wage gains seem to be be present among people where this might not apply as much, but it might as well. Like it, we might also just be in a point now where there's there's such tightness in like retail jobs that you can get a raise at. Uh, at J.C. Penney's. Is J.C. Penney's still in business? Yeah, but, but what, a, what a Gen X reference. <laughs> you, can, you can get a raise at, at J.C. Penney's because there's a J. Crew across the street and, and like, you can apply for jobs there. Like, I don't, I don't know that I would assume that these dynamics are sort of confined to white-collar occupations. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I wasn't concerned about, like, people taking research like this and, like, running with it in a negative direction until I saw this recent news story where the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, said he he wanted to see, quote, quite clear restraint in the annual wage bargaining process between staff and their employers to help prevent a wage spiral. So essentially he's telling labor, do not ask for raises or you'll be responsible for inflation. And that's, I mean, obviously people were so angry, like 10 Downing Street even like, disavowed this. It's it's like ridiculous uh, to, to say that like labor should not be like asking for more when like... When like so if you want to do wage and price controls, do wage and price controls. Yeah. Just don't like v- ask people to volunteer. Voluntarily make less money. Like if if we were going to ask people to voluntarily do something, I kind of think that Biden should be going door to door telling people not to buy cars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying to sell my car, so everyone keep buying cars, keep buying cars. We should. I elite. might be in the market, so let's talk after oh, this. Oh, yeah, totally. On that note, now, <laughs> now that Jer- Jerusalem and Dylan have personally ruined the United States economy. <laughs> That's all for us today. Uh, thank you to Vox for providing me with income that I might use to buy Jerusalem's car. Thank thanks, you, Vox. Thanks to Jerusalem Demsis and Dara Lynn for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. Um, before I let you go, I just wanted to, to update you on uh, something about show scheduling. So right now, The Weeds has been coming out on your feeds on Tuesdays and Fridays. We're going to be pausing the Friday episodes and going to once a week on Tuesdays while we gear up for some special programming that we're going to bring later this year. In the meantime, if you have any show ideas you want to share or big burning policy questions, just let us know. Uh, we're around. Send an email to weeds at vox.com. Or you can join the conversation that's happening in the Weeds Facebook group. And if you haven't already and still want to get a good dose of the Weeds on Fridays, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, go to vox.com slash weedsletter and you will keep hearing from us. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.